Please welcome Chad Hoven as we continue our series through the book of Exodus. And we are continuing in Exodus chapter 4 today. As we do that, we are looking at um, God's encounter with Moses and specifically how Moses is being asked to face his greatest fears. I think all of us can relate to need to face the fears in our life. He's going to need to face one fear is the fear of returning to an area that he failed before. Another fear is leaving his comfort zone. And instead, as he leaves his comfort zone, um, he's going to have to go to a place that he's never been to before. He's going to have to get the idea of facing uh, areas of of the past that maybe he didn't succeed the way he hoped before. But more than that, of all the fears he has, one of the greatest fears that Moses has is that he is going to have to face the Pharaoh and he's going to to confront and face all of the false gods of Egypt. And God is going to inoculate him against his greatest fears. In fact, the whole process of what God's going to do in this passage is that he is going to increase Moses' fear when Moses is scared. He's going to increase Moses' rejection, though he struggles with rejection. Why would a good and loving God increase the fear and increase rejection and increase bad circumstances to a guy who's already terrified? I moved to Cincinnati 12 years ago. I was 13 now. And when I first got here, I got to experience the wonder of Cincinnati, what we've come to call Cincinnatus. The constant sinus infection from being allergic to the molds in Cincinnati. I came into the doctor's office. I sat down in the waiting room and eventually he brought me into the room. And and, and this doctor, who supposedly took the Hippocratic Oath, asked me to lie down. He says, take off your shirt, lie down on the table. And as I'm laying there already feeling bad, having a 104 temperature for many, many days, he pulls out what I can only describe as a bed of nails... And he pushes into my back, stabbing me dozens and dozens of times, and then says, sit here for a few minutes. I get up after about 20 minutes, and he comes around with a black marker, and he begins to draw on my back. Uh-huh. 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 Yes, you're allergic to all eight molds of Cincinnati. You put that in my back? Yes, I did. You're allergic to dust mites. You're allergic to grass. Well, let's take care of this. And then this wicked man goes into his back room where he apparently has a vault filled with dust mites. How do you have a jar full of dust mites that he mixes into this potion, this concoction, where he puts in all the things that my body already is allergic to? Dust mites and grass and all eight molds of Cincinnati. And then he he puts it into a, a shot, sucks it up into a shot, comes back in. He says, put out your arm. He then takes all the things he knows I'm allergic to and he injects them into my bloodstream. And then says, we'll see you next week. He asked me to come back for years and he keeps increasing the dosage of the very things I'm already allergic to. Is this a wicked doctor? Did he go to med school? Or does he know something I don't? that I need to be inoculated to the very things that I'm trying to avoid. God is going to increase the things that Moses most is trying to avoid. Because God knows that behind every fear we have, behind every fear, is a false God. 
Behind every fear in your life, if you trace it underneath the fear, there's a false God that we're resting our life in that he wants to inoculate us to by faith. And usually those gods are some good thing that we've turned into an ultimate thing. False gods could be your status. You like your status. Nothing wrong with status. Nothing wrong with reputation. But when it becomes your ultimate identity, you have the fear you'll lose it. You have the fear somebody might replace you or come along and be better than you and take your place. If your false god is your appearance, as you get older, it's the fear of, will I still be liked? Am I still secure? Do I still matter? It's the false god of religion, performance, others' approval, my identity is what a good parent I am, my fame, my money, a a political cause, my title, being a good person, my identity as a spouse, or as I've joked before, it's your kid's behavior. Don't build your identity on your kid's behavior. You'll always be filled with fear. So let me give you a little background on Egyptian gods, some of the specific false gods, because Moses spent 40 years in Egypt where he was taught about the false gods of Egypt. And he would have known about them, not as false gods, but as supreme leaders of the world. One of the false gods of Egypt, or the gods of Egypt, is Budo. So Budo, if you look at his head, Budo has a snake head. Budo was the god who protected the pharaoh. He had a human body and a snake head. I'll put it up on the screen as well so you can see it. Budo was a all-powerful god, so much so that he would spit, he was the Egyptian python, and he would spit poison at Pharaoh's enemies. If you've seen a Pharaoh's hat, the Pharaoh's hat often has a snake on it. That is Budo, the god that protects the Pharaoh. Another god you would need to know about in Egypt is Thoth. Thoth is the Egyptian god of both medicine and the Egyptian god of healing and intelligence. And so if you had a medical issue, you would go talk to Thoth. Thoth was the God who would protect you and heal you. And one of the things that Thoth could do that that really you had no other option for is if you got the botch. The botch was the Egyptian name for leprosy. If you had leprosy, it was considered incurable unless occasionally you came into the presence and sacrificed to Thoth. He could occasionally solve or cure even the botch. The third god, although there's lots of them, but a third powerful god that was known in uh, Egypt was Happy. Happy was the god who protected the Nile. Very interesting god. He was a male god, and yet he always is pictured in Egyptian um, hieroglyphics with a nipple because he also was a fertility god who nursed the people in Egypt. Your business was because of Happy. The Nile provided for your crops. The Nile provided your plenty. You would sacrifice to happy by putting things into the river. Sometimes even your children you'd put into the river as a sacrifice, child sacrifice to happy. These were the three gods that I think God is going to be addressing that are hidden under the fears in Moses' life. Because in going back to Egypt, he's going to be confronting not only the Pharaoh who was considered God, but all of the Egyptian gods that he had learned for 40 years controlled the world. We're going to look at these signs God gives, these shots he gives them. We're going to look at Moses' disbelief. And finally, we're going to look at the most bizarre passage you've ever seen in your life about Moses' bridegroom. Let's begin with the signs. Moses answered at the burning bush and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord hasn't appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? Now notice the emphasis on belief, because that's going to be a main theme of this chapter. He said, what's in your hand? A staff? He said, well, why don't you take the staff, the rod, 
I want you to cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Look what God has done. Here's a fearful, scared guy. So God takes a fearful, scared guy and takes something he's not scared of and turns it into something he is scared of. He takes what was a good circumstance and turns it into a terrifying circumstance. What kind of a God is this? Is this a wicked God? Or does he know something Moses doesn't? And Moses, seeing this Egyptian python that his staff has turned into, jumps back, flees, and runs away. I want to get away from fear, not get near it. You've brought more fear into my life. To which God says, reach out, don't run from your fear, reach out and grab your fear by the tail. Now, for those of you who aren't snake wranglers, let me give you a little, a little wisdom about grabbing a snake. My dad used to go out to Colorado with my uncle when he was a teenager in college, and they would go after rattlesnakes. So my dad had on his hat growing up in college, he actually had a rattlesnake rattle on there that he captured from a rattlesnake. I don't recommend this, but if you're going to grab a snake with a hoe or a rake, you grab it by the neck so that its teeth can't get to you. You don't grab a snake by the tail where it has plenty of room to bite you. The historian Josephus tells us this Egyptian python... This Egyptian python was coiled and ready to strike as Moses had to reach out and grab the tail. By faith, saying, I'm obeying God, but oh my goodness, I'm grabbing my worst fear. And not just a snake, but a snake that represented the very God that protected the Pharaoh. And God is showing him in this moment, not only a sign of a snake, but a sign that he is supreme over the greatest fear and the greatest false God that's operating in the background of his life. More than that, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a promise was made that one of Eve's descendants, ultimately the Messiah, would come and crush the head of the snake. And Moses is getting to fulfill the majesty of God, the power of God, the story of God. He is being part of crushing the head of the snake that will ultimately be filled in Jesus. See, God doesn't just pull at random these magic tricks, they're all aimed at a false god behind our fears. The second sign, he turns to Moses. Oh, I'm sorry, let me finish it. And he reached out his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand. And they, here's the word again, may believe. The, the role of signs is always to increase belief or confidence in God. That the Lord God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. I want to increase belief through these signs. That I am the one true God, not Budo. Secondly, furthermore, the Lord said to him, right after that sign, Now, Moses, you've had some terrifying moments with a snake. Let's increase your fear some more. Take your hand, put it in your bosom, all right, and now take it out. And his hand was leprous, like white as snow, which is the nerve endings are dead when you have leprosy. Your, your flesh is literally dying. Chunks of your body can come off because you cannot feel it. It's dying. It's death. He has the botch, the incurable disease, the terrifying disease of Egypt, the one that only sauce can fix. And even then, he rarely does it. Only under severe sacrifice. And now here's a God who has again increased his fear with the worst possible medical account and report and test you could get. You have 
death on your body and it's spreading. And as he is wrestling with this, what the Egyptians called the Shekinah, the boils, the burning, the botch, God says, all right, you terrified? I want to show you that with me, I am greater than your fears. With me, you don't have to be controlled by your fears. and You don't have to be controlled by the God behind those fears. He says, therefore, put your hand, oh my goodness, my hand, I'm dying, into your bosom again. And he put his hand in his bosom again. He drew it out and, oh my goodness, it's restored. Oh, it's gone from white. It's, it's got pigment again. Oh my goodness, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But more than that, God is showing his resurrection power because he can bring life into a dead body. Just as he brought life into the bosom of, of Sarah and Abram, who, as Romans tells us, they were as good as dead when they had a child. What a great thing to have on your, on your tombstone or on your life. Hey, I'd like to introduce my friend. He's as good as dead. That's how Paul introduces Abraham. God says, I have resurrection power. Don't go to thought for resurrection power. I can breathe life, resurrection life into your body. He's coming against the gods behind his fears. He's terrified already of the things we get terrified, right? My greatest fear, the snake. My greatest fear, facing something I know is all-powerful. Facing the unknown. An insurmountable challenge. Oh my goodness, God, why would you allow this test result to come into my life? And either God is wicked and not good, or God knows something we don't. He's trying to inoculate us against our fear. And then if two giant fearful situations wasn't enough, he adds a third. The sign of the blood. And then it will be, if they don't believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. But if they don't believe those two signs, or listen to your voice, you're to take water from the river and pour it on dry land. I want you to go down when you get to Egypt. Take a scoop from the Nile River. I want you to walk that scoop, that picture up, that picture up, and I want you to pour it out and it will turn to blood. Well, that's really gross. What's God doing pouring blood all over Egypt? Why did he choose to go into the Nile of all the, the signs he could have performed? He's performing against Happy. Happy was the God of the Nile, the God that protected your crops, the, the God who provided for you. But remember, the Egyptians would occasionally sacrifice to Happy by putting their own children into the water. But worse than that, the Pharaoh had commanded all of the children, the male children in Egypt, the Israelites, to be sacrificed to Happy. So all these Israeli children have been killed and drowned as a sacrifice to Happy. And in the book of Genesis, it tells us that when Cain killed Abel, his blood cried out for justice. And God has seen the evil done in the name of these gods and the blood of the innocent is crying out for justice. And he comes into that where injustice was done and he takes the domain of happy and says, you don't control the water. You don't control this realm. I do. In fact, there is blood on your hands from what you have done to the innocent. And I will bring blood sacrifices to bring justice upon the Egyptians and to bring exodus for the Hebrews. There's false gods behind each one of our fears. Interesting, if you do a little background study on uh, Happy, he has a wife. Her name is Nechebet. 
You can see her in hieroglyphics. She's got her hands over the water. She protects the water of the Nile and other waters in Egypt. So this particular performance showing that God had a sign and power over the domain of the water spoke against Happy, spoke against his wife, but also spoke against their, their cousins. Their related gods were Osiris and Isis. Isn't that interesting? Isis was one of the gods of Egypt. The god who also controlled the Nile that you also sacrificed to by killing others. They were married together, Osiris and Isis, by the god Ra. And here God, by demonstrating these signs, is showing he is supreme, he is majestic, he is all-powerful over the reign of the gods of Egypt. And that's what these signs are all about. Why would God increase so much fear and difficulty in Moses' life? Is he a wicked God? Or does he know something we need that we don't? The story is told of a lumberjack. A lumberjack came to a forest and he had to chop down a whole bunch of the, the trees in this area. As he got there, he looked up in one of the trees and he saw a bird up in the tree. He thought, oh my goodness, if, if I'm going to chop down this tree, I'm going to kill the bird. I've got I to help the bird out. So he reached down and he grabbed his axe. But instead of chopping down the tree, he flipped it around and he began to bang on the tree. Whop, 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 whop. And the bird's like, hey, get out of here. What are you doing to my tree? Bam, bam, bam. Finally, the bird's like, fine. He flies over to another tree. I'm going to chop down that tree too. Bam, bam, bam. Oh, the bird's getting irritated. What are you doing messing with my tree? Flies over to another tree. I'm going to chop down that one too. Bam, bam, bam. Finally, the bird's like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go to a whole new forest. Is this an evil lumberjack? Or does he know something the bird doesn't? See, God comes into our life and he says there's a lot of good things in life. Nothing wrong with status, nothing wrong with performance, nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with fame, nothing wrong with wanting to approve other people. But don't build your nest in it. Don't build your identity in it because I love you enough to bang around in your life enough to make sure you don't build your life on something that's not going to last. That cannot sustain the full weight of who you are. We think after these three signs and incredible performance of, of God's work, Moses would have incredible belief. Maybe. Like Moses is a lot more like us. It's easier to disbelieve than to believe. Look what happens next. We move to Moses' disbelief. So Moses responds to this great, powerful work of God and says, um, Lord, I'm not really eloquent, neither before nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech. Uh, I'm slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who made your mouth? I did. Who has made the mute, the deaf, and the seeing, and the blind? Have not I? Don't focus on what you can't do. Focus on who I am. Don't focus on who am I. Focus on who I am is. I made your mouth. I'll come alongside you. How? Go. Go in faith. And I will be your mouth. I'll tell you what to say. I'll even teach you what you shall say. Let's do this together. Join me in this work. I'm going to be your training wheels. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to speak with you. I'm the all-powerful God, more powerful than the three biggest fears in your life. You can trust me. And Moses says in response to that speech, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else 
you're going to send. That's a great plan. That's a great thing. Send anybody but me. Not me. And God's getting a little irritated at this point. The anger of the Lord kindled against Moses. He takes a deep breath because he's already put a plan in place for this excuse. Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well. And look, surprise, he's coming out to meet you. We'll learn in a few verses that God sent for him. The training wheels. And when he sees you, he's going to be glad in his heart. All right, I got, I'll be your mouth. If not, I've got training wheels for you. I've got signs for you. All right, will you trust me now? Not really. Moses, so fearful of his fears, he won't talk. He says, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, Aaron's, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth, I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. He himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God and you. But there's some things you still need to do, even with the training wheels. You need to take the rod and do the signs. You need to be the one who does the signs. You. And Moses is just like, I just don't believe enough to do it. I just don't have enough belief. And his biggest fear is he does not want to address Pharaoh and he does not want to address the gods of the Pharaohs. So next verse, Moses went and returned to Jethro. Now it looks like he's obeying. On the outside we have external obedience. On the inside we have not so much. He comes to father Jethro's father-in-law and says to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt. Dad, see whether they're still alive. He doesn't come to his father-in-law and say, hey, I'm about to take your daughter and your grandkids, and we're going to go take on the biggest power in all the world, and we're going to tell him that if he doesn't let us go, that God's going to kill him. Grandparents don't like it when you, you talk about taking their grandkids in these situations. So we already see just a hint of Moses' inability to sort of tell the truth, because he's like, hey, I'm just going to go, so I'll be gone for a few days. I'm going to go check on my brethren back in Egypt, haven't seen them about 40 years, just see if they're okay. He goes on. Jethro says, well, that sounds good. Go in peace. I'm going to check on your, the family. Now, the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Well, that would have been nice to know a chapter ago. He's scared to death that the Pharaoh and the people who knew what he did 40 years ago to kill him. Why didn't God tell him that when he first appeared to him at the burning bush? Because he wanted to increase his faith before he changed the circumstances. So he didn't tell him that his greatest fear was gone until he's challenged him to put his faith in him despite the circumstances. So Moses takes his wife and his sons, sets them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. Looks like obedience. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Well, that looks like obedience. Looks like things are going well here. Until we get to the next part of the verse. The most bizarre passage in the Bible. The strangest, weirdest, no commentator really even knows what it means verse in the Bible that's going to give us a hint through a weird, weird, I mentioned it's weird, weird situation that Moses is not believing in God. Let's see what happens. Next verse. And the Lord says to Moses, all right, great. On your way back, let me give you what I really want you to do. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders we've talked about before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But just so you know, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You're scared of rejection. You're about to have a lot more rejection. You're scared of facing Pharaoh. Just know what you're going to do is not going to work. 
More shots. Thus says the Lord, when you get to Pharaoh, I want you to deliver this speech. And the speech is this. Israel is my son, my firstborn, and you kidnapped him. You took my son, and I'm coming to Israel to get my son out. Because I am Liam Neeson, and I have a particular set of skills, and I'm coming to take back what you took from me. That's the kind of father I am. I'm going to take back what you've done to my child. And don't we all want a father like that? See, people struggle with, why is God doing these plagues? This is a father who's had somebody kidnap his son. He's going to any extreme to break his son out of hostage situation. But look at the last part of the speech. And after you tell the Pharaoh to let my son go, that he may serve me, you then look at Pharaoh in the eye and say, if you refuse to let God's son go, God will kill your son, your firstborn. Who wants to deliver that speech? Not Moses. And this particular speech, this particular instruction is like, brings out all that unbelief, brings out all that fear, like not a chance. That's not the weird part, by the way. The weird part's coming. Next verse. And it came to pass that on the way, after saying, go tell Pharaoh, it's my son or your son, at the encampment, some location between Midian and Egypt, that the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. What? God's about to kill Moses. What a waste of two chapters of the Bible. Why, why even talk to the guy? You're going to kill him. But here's the thing. You know, when the Lord seeks to kill you, he could kill you. <laughs> it's not like I was like, oh, I missed. There's another lightning bolt. I missed. There's another one. So whatever this situation is, and we don't know, that God sought to kill him, God puts a circumstance that it's slow enough, it's obvious enough that they have time to respond. And it's obvious enough to Moses' family that they know what it's really about. And though he looks like he's externally obeying, in his heart he is disobeying and not having faith. It's saying, I may be bowing down to you on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. I'm going to do my own thing, my own way. What is it? Well, here's where it gets weird. His wife, Zipporah, Remember, Moses is 80, which means his sons are probably 30 or 40. She says, oh, I know exactly why God's going to kill him. Quick, son, come here, come here, come here, come here. 30-year-old son, hold on a second. Let me find a piece of flint. All right, we need to circumcise you to save dad's life. She circumcises him, throws the foreskin at Moses' feet. What? And then she says... Surely you are the husband of blood to me. And we don't know if she's saying that to Moses or if she says to God, Surely you are the husband of blood to me. That's weird. What in the world is going on? You read the commentators, they're all like, I don't know. So I'm going to give you my best take. But it's just my best take on what's going on. Why would God let Moses, who's about to face judgment and be killed, need a covenant of someone else to save his life? Why would Moses, who's about to be killed for his own disobedience, need the blood of a son to save him? And why would the blood of the son be recognized as the husband's covenant? 
Because I think before Moses delivers the message to the people, God wants to give him the same experience. Just as my people have judgment and need the covenant of another to be entered in, to be rescued, to be passed over, so you too. You're going to be delivering this message from a place of, I've been there, I've experienced that. And Moses, for whatever reason, in those 40 years in Midian, said, you know what, the covenant, the circumcision was the sign of the covenant, of saying, I'm trusting God to be my God, my justifier, my rescuer. And for whatever reason, he said, hey, that's 40 years ago. I'm not sure I even believe all that. And he, he had refused to enter his family, which says something about his heart, into the covenant of God's grace. But it gets weirder, which moves us from Moses' disbelief to Moses' bridegroom. We get a few more details on this. And I think it's because God wants Moses to experience mercy before he talks about mercy. He wants Moses to experience the need for a blood sacrifice before he describes the Passover and the need for a blood sacrifice. And remember, Moses wrote this book. If you were Moses and writing about your encounter with God, wouldn't you leave this chapter out? Turns out I didn't believe, and I made a bunch of excuses, and then uh, God was going to kill me, and so my wife had to do such, such and such to my son, and I threw it at my feet. And <laughs> That's why the Bible is true. You would not write this stuff. You would not make this stuff up. You would not talk about what an incredibly broken person you are, that you're Moses, and you have done everything wrong, even in your own autobiography. Zipporah took a sharp stone. <laughs> She cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. She said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. God let him go. And then she said, you are a husband of blood. You're my bridegroom, in one translation, because of the circumcision. Now, maybe she says that to God. God, you are now, we're trusting you to be our bridegroom. In Revelation, there's a bridegroom named Jesus, who is the son who did die to put us all into covenant. Remember in Luke, after Jesus' resurrection, he tells everybody, the whole Bible was about me. Even a weird thing like this. The verse continues. Moses, having been rescued from judgment, now goes to rescue his people from judgment. And he, having had this experience, did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. Signs led to belief. But when they heard, now listen to this, they believed when they saw the signs, but when they heard that the Lord had visited them and that he looked on their affliction, that God cares for them, that's when they bowed their head and worshipped. See, God wants worship and God wants belief. Signs will give you belief, but when you know God cares, that there is a son and a bridegroom who came into our world and suffered and died and gave his own blood that God doesn't stay in heaven where it's nice and safe. He comes and dwells among us. It's then your heart goes, oh, I worship a God who would meet me in my need. Because many of us say we're followers of Christ. We believe he's going to get us to heaven, but we're not sure if God is good. And our biggest challenge in trusting God is we're not sure he's good in the midst of our current circumstances that have gotten worse or difficult or more challenging. But God wants you to know he cares. He's been there. He understands. And it's the worship that comes out of knowing that there's a God who's with us. Because behind every fear is a false God. A false God that God wants to inoculate us to by faith. This week I'd like you to trace your fears. Don't think of your fears as just, I need to change my behavior a little bit. Get under your fears. Every time you see fear, ask yourself, what's really driving this? 
What's the real functional God I have made and built my my treehouse in, like the bird that I built my identity on? What is the thing behind my fears that I'm resting my whole life upon? The last few months, as God has just continued to build my faith in the midst of a whole lot of shots, it's just amazing to see how confident, how powerful he is in the midst of it. One of the great examples is because my back's been feeling better and I was on my way to a prayer meeting. I've been to a prayer meeting a long time. I went to a prayer meeting just to pray to keep my back feeling better. I'm like, I'm going to go to a prayer meeting. Where's a prayer meeting? I went to a prayer meeting in the church. And on my way, um, I just realized just how much dependence I've had on God recently. And, and so I took my, my son Quinn skiing because he loves to ski. And so we went skiing at Perfect North this week. His picture of me and Quinn. And he just loves to ski. I love skiing with him. And, and as we're skiing, I'm making all these promises to him. You know, I'm right behind him. I'm like, buddy, don't worry. I got him strapped up to this little harness so I can sort of steer with him from behind. Buddy, don't worry. And he's always trying to grab my hand, grab my hand. I'm like, buddy, I'm here. I got you. You're okay. And no matter what I say, his hands go up in the air trying to find me behind him when we ski. Because he skis between my legs. And so finally, okay, I'll grab your hand. I'll grab your hand. <sighs> he calms down. And we ski down the big slopes, and we're skiing, and, and I'm trying to do a snowplow for the two of us, and we're just having a great time, and he just like, jumps up and down, he starts having so much fun, and we ski, we ski for about two hours this week. Just an awesome time. Yeah, I felt like God was saying to me, Chad, you've heard my promises, but I really want you to be more like Quinn. God, you better hold me. God, you better help me. I, I, I need to not hear your promises, I need to feel your presence. If I'm going to move through these waters and move through these valleys and trust you in the face of my greatest fears. God wants to increase our faith by tracing our fears to our false gods. Let's pray. Father, for each person here today, I ask that you show us freedom. You know how many prayers I've had against the false gods in my life recently. And the deliverance you're doing in my heart. Father, I ask that you will bring deliverance from those of us who depended on self-sufficiency versus you. We built our identity on things outside of our control. God, that you would allow us to root ourselves in your power and your grace. That you would be our bridegroom, our son, our covenant, and the way of escape. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Thanks for being here today. Hey, if you're uh, new to the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left is the hearth room. If you came prepared to give financially, there's some uh, places out in the foyer you can give there as well. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.